Good afternoon. I hope you all had a good lunch. And does everyone now have a copy of the handouts that I gave? Have you by chance had a chance to look over them? Yeah. <clears throat> Let me just ask if anybody has any questions because of something that you've seen in the handout. Yes. Uh, would you say that Tanisaro Biku, would you say that he practiced or teaches the ultralight jhanas? I mean, I know he focuses on the whole body and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not sure uh, what uh, Tanisaro Biku's views on the actual practice of jhana would be. I, I, I've never, I've only sat with him once very briefly and uh, it was a very general discussion. Jhanas didn't even come up. And I can't really tell from anything that he's written. So, do you uh, do you have some experience or? Well, I, I've listened to a couple of his talks and read some articles, and it, it sounds pretty similar because he, he does keep that whole body awareness in the mm-hmm. process. That would that would be the what I called the ultralight jhanas. Yeah, right, definitely. Yes. Um, I participated in a jhana retreat that he gave and. I didn't understand most of it because at that time I hadn't, um, I wasn't really ready. But it seemed to me he taught the whole gamut of jhanas, not just ultralight, not just body. But also body the harness. deep jhanas that involve uh, withdrawal from senses. Uh-huh. Okay, it would make sense that he would, uh, amongst the people that might speak of, he would be one I would expect to be aware of the whole range of jhanas. Whereas there's many teachers, they you know they're kind of stuck in well. This one particular way, this is this is jhana, and anything else is something else. But Anasaro Bhikkhu would be very aware of the different ways it's practiced. Makes sense. And he really thought they were very important. So. Yes. Very important and very misunderstood. So. <clears throat> and there's some interesting questions about methods of practice that don't involve samatha training and jhanas probably shouldn't really get into that. But there are people that have um, that claim to be uh, have, have higher path attainments, including arhat. In dry vipassana tradition, who then turn around and say they uh, say that the things that the Buddha said about uh, the description of arhats and non-returners and once-returners and so forth are not accurate, and that makes me really wonder what's what's going on there. So. <laughs> it's not something to get into. <clears throat> yes? What is meant by the term dry vipassana? Dry vipassana is a vipassana practice that does not involve uh, the deliberate cultivation of samatha. Um, and it's dry because it, it specifically lacks the, the moisturizing lubrication of, of samatha, of the joy, happiness. Uh, tranquility and equanimity. Um, 
So most of the things that you would have encountered under the label Vipassana in this country, uh, the method from Uba Ken that's taught by Goenka and his students, and the noting practice uh, that's widely disseminated from Mahasi Sayadaw and has been predominant at IMS and uh, Spirit Rock, these are dry Vipassana practices. Okay, any other questions that anyone might have related to the handouts at this point? Yes? I had a small question about <coughs> Mahali's characteristics of flow. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about how the flow experience is a feeling of exercising controls and not being in control. So I don't know if you can a bit. Um, well, just briefly, uh, the, the feeling of being in control is, is uh, it, it comes from a sort of egocentric basis that I am controlling this. And uh, since a, a person can never be completely in control of everything, it really makes it very difficult for somebody with that point of view to actually experience flow because they're constantly finding themselves in, in conflict with the things that they can't actually control. So uh, the distinction to to be capable of doing something and to be doing the very best that you are capable of, that is exercising control. But that also happens with the recognition that, you know, uh, no matter how good you are at doing it, you won't always be completely successful and there will always be other factors that enter in that, uh, that uh, interfere with that. Well, on page 7 and the following pages is a description of the characteristics of the jhanas, and I thought I would briefly go over that with you. The specific meditative states that the word jhana usually refers to are organized as four distinct stages are states, meditative states, that are described as the form jhanas. And then there are four other meditative states called formless jhanas, which are uh, usually described as being variations of the fourth form jhana. Once you reach the fourth form jhana, then uh, you can practice the the jhanas of the four formless spaces. So let's look at these first four form jhanas and and how they are defined in the sutras and in Buddhist tradition. Uh, Keeping in mind, as we said last night, that a jhana is a wholesome absorption that occurs in meditation uh, and is uh, associated with uh, the jhana factors. So the first jhana is defined in three the three main characteristics we can look at here. The first jhana, the meditator is withdrawn from sexual desires and from all unwholesome states of mind. What does that mean? Well, the key word here is it's withdrawn. 
you've gone, you've sat down to meditate, you've let go of of your worries, your concerns, your desires, your hopes, everything else. You're coming into the present, you're letting go of everything else that's not part of this. And so that's the withdrawal aspect. To the degree that you do that, have done that, you know the feeling of peace and happiness that comes with that. Just for the moment, letting go of everything. You, you basically, you have a time where that is entirely your own. That you owe nobody, you owe nothing, you, this is your meditation time, you don't have to do anything else, you can forget about everything else, let go of it all. That's you let go of all the unwholesome states of worry and desire and hope and fear and, and everything else. The jhana factors that are present, these are usually present in what's called access concentration. So before entering an absorption, you need to have already established a certain degree of uh, of Piti will be present. It will be already be some joy and happiness. You will have already been practicing uh, in that sit long enough that you've established a degree of uh, focused attention, single-pointed attention. It's already present. And then you are ready to enter into the jhana. So you have meditative joy and pleasure and happiness born of withdrawal. So those are the characteristics. You enter the absorption. You, uh, the experience of entering absorption is that what you focused your attention on and the awareness of the jhana factors together are going to fully occupy your, your consciousness. There's not really any room for anything else. And that's, that's the sense in which it is an absorption. And sometimes it will feel as though you are sinking into the meditation object when that occurs. Or other times it might feel like the meditation object expands and it just completely fills your attention and awareness. But the effect is the same, however you might choose to subjectively describe it to yourself. The, the end result is that you become quite absorbed with the meditation object and the jhana factors. Okay? Now, the second jhana, and the way that you do this is to, when you, uh, when you have learned to enter the first jhana, and it's a very distinctive feeling, this feeling of just being completely focused. And as I said, you've had it before. You've been absorbed in other things before. When it comes in meditation, you recognize it's very distinctive. <clears throat> so you learn to do that and you repeat it. You, get, you develop some skill in entering the jhana and staying in the jhana because initially you won't be able to stay in jhana very long. You'll pop out of it. Um, it's like on your way 
to entering the jhana, you acquire a certain momentum. And when that, that momentum exhausts itself, you're going to come back out of the jhana. So you, in order to stay in jhana for a longer period of time, you have to refine your ability to, to create the conditions for entering the jhana and remaining in the jhana. You, you, uh, <clears throat> you need to notice what, what are the things that you did uh, in preparation for your meditation, what are the things that you did in the first part of your meditation that contributed to all of the right conditions coming together to enter into the jhana? And by becoming aware of those things, you, you're able to do them more readily in the future, and you're able to enter jhana and stay for longer periods of time. And the next thing you need to do, once you can, once you don't just spontaneously pop out of the jhana after a few minutes, is you uh, develop the ability to, to, to determine how long you're going to stay in, in the jhana. And this is, this is that same thing that some of you have already experienced, where if you time your meditations regularly, you get to the point where you know when the meditation is up. And it's not like you're thinking about it, it's just all of a sudden the thought appears that, oh, probably just about time, and sure enough, the bell rings, or if you look at the clock, there's only a minute or so to go. It seems that some part of our mind, brain, whatever, has this, this capacity for monitoring time. And so what you do then is you practice determining in advance how long you're going to stay in the jhana. So you say to yourself, you form the resolution before you enter the jhana that, you're going to stay in jhana for 10 minutes. And then you get good at determining how long you're going to stay in the jhana, and sure enough, you come out and you look at the clock. And it's been about the right amount of time. So. so you become good at entering jhana and leaving jhana, emerging from jhana, and determining how long you're going to stay in jhana. Then the next really important thing is the review. This is actually part of the mindfulness process. You review the jhana, you review the state of your mind before you entered the jhana. You review your recollection of the jhana. And that recollection will be very sharp and clear when you first come out of the jhana. Uh, so you recollect what it's like to be in the jhana. And then you compare that with the state of your mind now that you've reemerged. And that's the review. So these, these are the things that you learn to do uh, in the process of acquiring mastery of the jhana. That takes some amount of time. And in the process, you'll become very, very familiar with the jhana factors, the qualities of a particular jhana, the feeling tone that it has. And you'll also discover, you know, at first, entering the jhana is very... It's very pleasing. Uh, you, you have a lot of satisfaction of accomplishment. But at some point, you will become dissatisfied with that jhana. And that, that's the real indication that you're ready to move on and learn the next jhana. When you, you start feeling a certain dissatisfaction. In the first jhana, you have a meditation object. And... Uh, 
what you will experience is there's uh, uh, after a while that the jhana has this unsettled quality. It's like it's just constantly vibrating. Uh, and that's attributed to the directing and sustaining of attention. That even though even though your subjective experiences of continuously being aware of something, in fact, it is a renewal of this conscious attention to the object happening over and over again. And you'll become aware of that as a disturbing sort of energetic vibration in the jhana. That's part of what you become dissatisfied with. So then when that happens, you're ready to move on to the next jhana. Now, in the ultralight jhanas, you'll still continue to have a meditation object because you you haven't achieved a degree of unification of mind yet in your meditation practice overall. You haven't achieved a degree of mastery where you can dispense with a meditation object yet. But uh, as you get into the deeper jhanas, uh, even, the, even the next level beyond ultralight, the ones I call light, you do not need to have a meditation object any longer. You can let go of that. And as a result of that, that sort of vibrating, fluctuating quality of the first jhana is not present in the second jhana. The second jhana, the meditator has <coughs> confidence and unification of mind. Now, what we're speaking of here, and remember these descriptions are applied across the whole range of different degrees of depth of jhana. So what we're speaking of here is, in terms of the deeper jhanas, you now have sufficient unification of mind that you do not need a meditation object. And that's the way it's defined, is that there is unification of mind without directed and sustained attention. So that's, that's essentially defining one of the most important differences between the first and the second jhana. The joy and the happiness are still there. That part is the same. Uh, and in this jhana, it is said that the joy and happiness are born of concentration rather than withdrawal. See, in the first jhana, we were experiencing joy and happiness, the freedom, the liberation, the, okay, I'm just here for myself, doing my thing, I forget all my worries, all my problems, and everything else. That's the joy and happiness of withdrawal. Of course, there would have been joy and happiness reinforced by concentration in the first jhana as well. But now, it's really, it's because of this unification of mind, it's become much deeper. And really, the source of your joy and happiness is the degree of concentration and unification of mind that's present. The effect of that is that the piti, the joy, is very intense. So there's intense joy and happiness and bodily pleasure. And this is what, over time, as you practice this jhana, you become skilled at entering the jhana, remaining for an appropriate period of time, emerging from the jhana, and then reviewing the jhana, and as you continue to do that, you will reach the point where you become dissatisfied with this jhana. And what you are dissatisfied with, in particular, is that agitated energy of piti, because piti is strong, very strong piti. And 
So this is the time when you're ready to move on to the next jhana. You say to yourself uh, something to the effect of um, the, there is this agitation and disturbance and I can see what greater serenity, what greater peace and happiness there would be if I could let go of this agitated energy of piti. And that's exactly what happens, it's exactly what you do to enter the third jhana. The strong mindfulness, mindfulness, introspective awareness, so there's, there's mindfulness and clear comprehension. There's no meditation object anymore, except in the uh, lighter versions of the practice, there's no meditation object. So essentially, all of the power of your consciousness is going into this introspective awareness because it's no longer focused on an object. Uh, and even the awareness of that uh, joyful mental state is now gone. The, the jhana factors that remain are the pleasure and happiness, and now there's, there's an equanimity that's developing as well. So these are the jhana factors, and the third jhana is sukha, which, depending on the depth of your jhana, may still involve a feeling of bodily pleasure, even though you won't be aware of bodily sensations as such. You won't feel the weight of your body on the cushion. You won't feel uh, any, any normal sort of bodily sensations. You'll have, you'll have a perception of the body uh, as a pleasurable object and there will be happiness. So the third jhana is a pleasant abiding with equanimity, and there is bodily pleasure and or happiness. That's pretty, sounds pretty nice, doesn't it? Okay. Question. Yes. You said that uh, in this stage, the power, all of, of your power of awareness is going to what now? All the power of your consciousness goes to awareness. What normally happens is a large part of the consciousness capacity that we have is concentrated in attention to a single object. Now it's all available to a very high, very heightened level of awareness. Awareness of the mind. Now the third jhana also does eventually become less than perfectly satisfying. There's a very strong feeling of contentment and happiness, but you actually become discontented with contentment. <laughs> 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 Once you've succeeded in learning to enter the first jhana, it's not too difficult to enter the second and third. But some people find that the transition from third to fourth jhana to be a challenge. Because there can be a lot of attachment to the, to the happiness, the pleasure and the happiness. It can be a strong source of attachment. What's that? It's too much work. <laughs> well... Which is too That's much. That's how I experience it, being content. Being content. It's well, more work than the fourth child. Yeah, eventually, eventually, eventually it, comes to, it comes to be something that you get tired of, and then you really do, 
you're ready to move on. And so that's what you let go of in the transition from the third to the fourth jhana. The, the bodily pleasure part of it is actually the easiest to let go of. It's the mental happiness, the mental pleasure, that is the most difficult to let go of. So usually you won't be able to enter the fourth jhana until you get tired of it. You do have to get tired of it. You have to start having that thinking, that sense that, ah, there is something even more sublime, even more serene than what I'm experiencing now. And that's when you're that's when you're ready to move on. The fourth jhana has purity of mindfulness due to equanimity. And equanimity is the only jhana factor that remains. And the mind of the meditator is said to be thus concentrated, purified, bright, unblemished, rid of imperfection, pliant, malleable, wieldy, steady, and attained to imperturbability. Why is it called a form jhana? Well, in all of the in all of these form jhanas, <clears throat> there is still an awareness of space and that subjective feeling, the one you have right now, of being in a place in space. Get in touch with that. You know what I'm talking about? There it is. Yeah. I am here. You know, there's that. It's in, in the map of the universe in your mind. There's the little red arrow that says. You are here. <laughs> uh, that, that, uh, and also the uh, the feeling of pleasure that you've experienced in your body and so forth. These are what make all of these jhanas. They still retain their connection to the realm of the senses, and and the world of space and time. So, once you've achieved the fourth jhana, you've refined it to the point where really the only thing that there is left to get rid of is this sense of being at a finite location in space. And so, were you going to say something? I have a question about yeah. that. Um, do all of the first four jhanas have the quality of introspective awareness? They do. And is that associated then with a sense of a, a being that is practicing that, that introspective yes. awareness. So there's still a sense of self. That's right. There is still a sense of self. Although some people... Uh, well, I, I think everyone, when they first enter the jhanas, it is so different than our ordinary sense of self. And you feel the absorption with the object makes it feel like you've become one with the object. And so it seems as though... <clears throat> is not a sense of self. And you will sometimes find things, people saying, or you'll read something where somebody says, well, in the jhana, there's no longer any sense of the self. But if you practice each of these jhanas, as you practice it long enough, you will begin to be aware that, well, yes, there still is that same self-awareness, that same subject-object duality. It's, uh, it's not as apparent, but it's definitely there. You haven't gone beyond it. And it's still present there in in the uh, form jhanas too, or formless jhanas. It's become very subtle there, but it's still there. But it's still that capacity within us which notices 
uh, save in a subtle distraction and, and says return. Well, except that now in, in, a, in a light jhana, you become aware, you'll be, what will happen is there will things which, which will disturb your jhana, and you'll become aware of them uh, in that way of introspective awareness. And if they haven't disturbed the jhana too strongly, you can establish it immediately. So there will be just this momentary interruption of the jhana. But it actually is an interruption of the jhana that occurs. Uh, the deeper jhanas are accessed from a state of concentration where the concentration is effortless. And in those, uh, there is not going to be that kind of distraction arising. And you won't... You, you won't wobble in and out of the jhana and have that experience. Okay, but what you're entering, you're, the things that you, you're fully conscious in all of these jhanas. You're not only fully conscious; you're more fully conscious than normal. You know, there's nothing, nothing dull or trance-like about the jhana. It's a brilliant state of consciousness. So I'll just, I'll just jump ahead to the description from the sutras of the fourth jhana. He sits permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness. Just as if a man were sitting covered head to foot with a white cloth, so that there would be no part of his body to which the white cloth did not extend. Even so, the monk sits permeating the body with a pure, bright awareness. There is nothing of his entire body not pervaded by pure, bright awareness. So, this is a very highly conscious state. But... Um, the, the consciousness is experiencing the jhana itself. It's experiencing the jhana factors in particular, and it is capable of identifying all sorts of other subtle characteristics of the mind. If, we, if you look ahead to... There's a sutra that I quote in its entirety here at the end, starting on page 22. This is describing how Sariputra, this is a description by the Buddha himself, of how Sariputra became an arhat practicing the jhanas. And he practiced mindfulness and this is how he practiced mindfulness. This is something that's repeated for each of the jhanas. Okay. I'll read this section on page 22 that is about the first jhana, but you know, the important part of this is repeated for each of the other jhanas as well. There was the case where Sariputta, quite secluded from sensuality, secluded from unskillful qualities, that's first jhana characteristics you'll recognize, entered and remained in the first jhana, rapture and pleasure born of seclusion, accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. Whatever qualities there are in the first jhana, this is the part I was getting at, directed thought, evaluation, rapture, pleasure, singleness of mind, these are all the jhana factors. In addition to that, he goes on, contact, feeling, perception, intention, consciousness, desire, decision, persistence, mindfulness, equanimity, and attention, he ferreted them out one after another, 
Known to him, they arose. Known to him, they remained. Known to him, they subsided. He discerned, so this is how these qualities, not having been, come into play. Having been, they vanish. So the jhana is a state of profound introspective awareness, powerful introspective awareness, in which, now it's not focused attention, it is awareness. So you sit in jhana and awareness encompasses all of this. And in lighter jhanas, you can focus attention on and, and reflect on and evaluate some of these. It can be a certain amount of discursive thought and evaluation takes place. And so uh, they're probably more like the kind of mindfulness that you would practice of mindfulness that you're more likely to think of. But in the deeper jhanas, what is happening is you're sitting in that place of direct experience of all of these things. And as you do so, they, be, they begin to, their nature begins to emerge, their rising and passing away begins to present itself. And, and you understand their nature, and you understand the relationship of them to, uh, to each other. By simply observing with awareness, not by analyzing, not by focusing your attention on them, thinking about them, investigating them, and so forth, but just by observing. Um, do you follow what I'm saying? Do you know how that happens? Or is that a mysterious description to any of you? It's a mysterious? Yes, it's complete mystery. I, okay. I, I got lost trying to follow which, um, if I did deeper genres, show the nature of something, and, and I, I can't figure out what you meant. The, you, you, I'm trying in, to... In the deeper genres... You're exercising the power that mindful awareness has that does not require focused attention, thought, evaluation, investigation, things like that. And if I an experience in the world that I have that's an exact parallel to this might help you because you may have had an experience like this. A few years ago, I became interested in the birds, there are many birds around where we live, and I tried in the usual way of focusing on individual birds, looking up what their names were and what their characteristics were, and the experience that I had was that uh, I kept making mistakes. You know, it's like, I think, oh, that's such and such a bird. And then some bird would come along and say, no, 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 it's not. I said, but it has this and this. He said, yeah, but see, that's what's different. And it's like, <laughs> okay. You know, and, uh, and also the experience that, you know, uh, all five of those birds look the same. How can they be five different birds? You know? <laughs> and yet, Somebody else could come along and, and say, well, that's, that's that, and that's a female that, and that's a male that. And, and so I did, I said, well, okay, I like watching them. I don't need to know who they are. So I just quit, and I just sat and I watched the birds, and I enjoyed watching the birds. Spent many, many hours 
especially, you know, when I, the period when I was quite sick, I couldn't do much else. I'd sit on hot packs and I'd watch the birds for hours at a time. And I wasn't thinking about them. And I wasn't paying attention to who had a white collar and who had a red earmark and, and all these sort of things. Didn't think about that at all. I just watched them. And what happened as a result of simply watching them and not analyzing them, I just gradually got to know them all. So I knew this one was different than that one because I'd watched them. They behaved different, different personalities looked different. There was no analysis required or involved in it at all. It's just the understanding of them arose out of the experience of awareness without needing to focus and analyze and so forth. And then from that, Later on, what I could do is I could look them up in the bird books. And, oh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah, I know. How that's <laughs> the one thing I never did get good at was remembering their names. But, <laughs> but through the application of awareness, uh, my mind accomplished something that it could have done through the application of directed and sustained attention and discursive thought and analysis. But it happened in a much more natural and easy way, just through this, just through awareness. The same thing happens when you, with the practice of mindful awareness. Understandings begin to emerge. One of the things that I found is what I'm calling awareness is more about the relationship between things than it is about the things as separate entities. And so when you practice mindful awareness in your life, understandings, insights just arise. They come up, there's these ahas. And you didn't figure them out. They just arrived. That's the way that's the way mindful awareness works. That's the way insight arises out of the practice of mindful awareness. Is what's been seen, it gets at some level it gets processed and integrated and begins to make sense and you just get to enjoy the fruit of that. It comes up and, aha, I don't need to keep doing this to myself anymore now that I see what I'm doing. That, that kind of thing. So, um, in answer to, uh, I, I, I'm trying to explain to uh, Alana what I mean by how you can come to know things through mindful awareness through mindfulness even though there isn't directed attention and analysis and evaluation so I want to know if if that clarified that point and does this match with experiences that you've had things that you in, insights and, and understandings that you have that they just emerge and you know they emerge from this more global awareness rather than analysis yeah. <coughs> to hear you describe the experience of the birds and um, the different way of being with those birds reminds me of perhaps remind, reminds me of how I imagine um, people in another time way prior to our contemporary time before there were dictionaries and all these quantifiable measuring in, in instruments names and all that that people um, watched the way that clouds would move and how that would bring about rain here and how the birds reacted there. That was a more whole or global observation, which might have, which probably, well, 
which must have affected how they thought about how, how their I internal experience. Mm -hmm. So, first of all, is that correct? Second of all, it seems like we have another layer of complexity to move through nowadays mm -hmm. because our left brain is so engaged and we are, we are taught to quantify and to evaluate and to judge and compare. Whereas this, this left brain function might not have been present in, in uh, so-called more primitive times, which were actually perhaps more advanced in this way. Uh, yes, what you're saying, <clears throat> the kind of awareness that I'm talking about is actually, if you watch birds and deers and other deer and other animals like that, cats, you know, I'm famous among some people for telling them that my cat doesn't think. <laughs> um, but I mean, what's, what, what makes us unique, it's not so much right brain versus left brain. We've got large parts of our brains that have evolved to give us special capabilities. Front parts of the brain, uh, you know, the, the forebrain. And, but <clears throat> leaving aside right versus left or where anatomically this is, as I said earlier, what I'm calling awareness is far more fundamental. It's a far more fundamental property of our minds than attention is. And in other organisms, this arose and was developed prior to the ability to focus attention and to, and to analyze, uh, before the ability to store large amounts of information in our minds and to uh, use that information to, to uh, predict the future and so on, all this sort of stuff. Both are really important. I mean, our, our, we would not be what we are if we didn't have the capacity for focused attention, for analysis, if we weren't able to dwell in a fictional future or uh, in a remembered past. So all of these things are very important to what we are. Even though in order to realize our full potential, we need to learn to uh, temper certain activities of our mind. They're still extremely valuable and important. So what we're after is learning to use them far, far better, uh, in a much, much better way. And focused attention, that particular circuitry is kind of up here on the top of your brain, has, has the ability to dominate far too completely that other kind of awareness circuitry that's located on the ventral surface of the cerebral hemispheres. And practicing mindful awareness is bringing those two back into balance and, and exercising them. So you're right that more primitive beings, pre-hominid, or even much simpler organisms like lizards and snakes and birds and things like that, have naturally much more of this kind of awareness. I mean, if you watch a deer in the wild, there is awareness and attention. The, the deer's attention will be, there'll be a sound. An ear will flick mm -hmm. and the deer will turn and it'll focus just long enough to establish that, okay, this is not a danger, and then it's gone, and the 
deers back to nibbling on leaves or whatever it is. So this, this is an important part of the way they are and the, the way that they function. Um, we're trying to, to learn once again to utilize some of that so that we can achieve what we are ultimately capable of. Because we have these new toys, and you know how it is with new toys. You get so fascinated with them, you forget all the old stuff. And that's kind of what happens with us. We're so busy using our, our forebrain and our left hemisphere and doing all this analytical stuff that we've, we've, we've lost uh, some, of, some of our potential is not, not there, not being fully realized. Anyway, insight requires certain things. Insight requires that it, it involves attention, and that's what you're doing in the, uh, in the stage after you come out of the jhana where you review. You are focusing your attention on things that are recollected from the state of mind before you entered the jhana, the state of mind when you were in the jhana, and also you're putting your attention on the corresponding things that are present in the state of mind after jhana. The important thing about attention there is that it's in its objective mode. Remember last night I said attention is always dualistic, but it can either be subjectively, you know, enthralled in, in by the object, or it can have the subject-object distance. To practice mindfulness, you need to use attention, but you need your attention to examine objectively and to be combined with this awareness. And out of that emerges insight. Out of that emerges understanding of the relationships between things, including the relationships between all the different kinds of mental events that take place. And out of that comes this not intellectual, not analytical, but just this profound understanding, this aha, yes, everything is just process, is impermanent, there is no self, <coughs> that clinging to anything results in suffering, and so forth. These things just become self-evident truths as a result of the practice of mindfulness. So anyway, in the jhanas, you have this awareness. And you brought this awareness to its maximum capability because you're no longer hogging a lot of your consciousness capacity to focus it on in on one particular thing, because you've dropped directed and sustained attention in the first jhana. So in the second and third and fourth jhana, and in the four formless jhanas, well, in the first three of the four formless jhanas, what you have is introspective awareness the full power of your consciousness capacity in the form of this introspective awareness, just taking in the reality of what your mind is. And afterwards, when you review, then the insights begin to come up. They pop up. Anyway, did, did you read these descriptions from the sutras of the jhanas? They're quite beautiful. And if you've already read them, I don't need to read them to you. Let me tell you a little bit about the formless jhanas, and then we'll take a break. From the the fourth jhana is a very interesting one because here you have you have awareness of your own mind. 
And that awareness actually has access to all kinds of things in your mind, about your mind, that you don't normally have access to. Even the nature of mind in a way that you've never previously experienced it. You experience your mind as being isolated and separate, don't you? As a matter of fact, there's almost nothing more isolated and separate than your perception of your mind compared to anybody else's, right? Are you familiar with Carl Jung's um, collective unconscious? Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you? Somebody like to say what that means? It means that we don't own that unconscious knowledge, but it pervades all humanity, and from that arise all kinds of archetypal beings and thoughts. And it's the same with the mind here, yeah. only the other way around. That's right. That's exactly what Carl Jung was saying. He came to the conclusion that we all share this one <coughs> unconscious, which was where all of our archetypes resided, and that we were all drawing from the same unconscious. And other people since then have tried to say, well, you know, add so much for that airy-fairy mystical stuff. What he really discovered is that all of our minds are pretty similar, so it has the same stuff in there. But what you will find if you spend time in the fourth jhana is that the barriers between your perception of your own private separated mind and some larger collective mind become, they begin to disappear. And the idea of the collective unconscious begins to really make sense to you. What the Buddha said is that he, he entered first jhana, second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. And he says, and then he re recollected all of his past lives. Now, there's a very interesting idea, especially coming from a man who had already told everybody that there was no self, and that the doctrine of reincarnation was mistaken. All of his previous past lives. But now, if if his mind isn't really a separate mind, but it's part of a common mind, then does, that now has a different meaning, doesn't it? If in that state he could access knowledge, memory, so to speak, of all of the different forms that mind had taken, then he, it, would, it was an opportunity to recollect past lives. Not one not one isolated series of, you know, A, B, C, D, E, F, G in a sea of other beings. But actually, if all mind is interconnected in some way, then any any of our minds has access to the whole. And also uh, then once again any life that's ever been lived is essentially your past life. He went on to say, not only did he review all of his past lives, 
but he reviewed the arising and passing away of beings of every kind. So we're all sharing this parallel life. We're all, that's exactly what this is saying to us. Yes. And in, in the fourth jhana, this is what the mind potentially has access to. The, the barriers that separate the individual isolated mind break down. Which has led me to examining my dreams and realizing that I have dreams that the only way that they truly make sense is if I'm accessing the actual lived and remembered experience of other sentient beings in other places at other times. Because I've been places and I've seen things in my dreams that not only have I never seen, I've never read about, heard about, thought about, or even suspected the existence of until I went to sleep one night and there it was. You know. <laughs> so what you have access to in the fourth jhana is really quite remarkable. You, yes? Okay. Um, this might not be, be too, too in, in, involved to discuss here, so you can say no. Yeah. You've hit on um, a confusion I have. Um, one of my friends is very fond of shamanic journeying, mm -hmm. and she very much believes that absolutely there is an objective, upper, middle, and lower realm. You enter it a certain way. You you approach it very much. Is is the, the the similarities in structure between what you're saying here about entering and leaving jhanas and their and their their structure is is similar to what she says. So she shamanic journeys, and. I kind of had an interest in that, and I set that aside when I decided to pursue Buddhist study a little more closely, because it seemed to me like I, I needed to be concerned about getting lost in fantasy, and, and a lot of your previous lectures are, don't get lost in fantasy. Now you're talking about the collective unconscious, you're talking about possibly accessing the experience of others, I, I'm, I'm on board with you there. I'm comparing it to uh, to what she says, where yeah, she believes this is an objective, and I'm you know it 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 sounds like she could be modeling this collective unconscious very powerfully. So my question is, if this collective unconscious is out there and there's some other technique for reaching it, such a shamanic journey, such as studying your dreams. Do we go for that, or is that premature, or is that an opportunity to just get lost in fantasy? Well, <clears throat> it's very easy to get lost in fantasy. And there's nothing better about getting lost in some other mind's fantasy than uh, getting lost in your own mind's fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very important thing to keep in mind. Shamanic journeying, you know, and... Uh, Nancy and I studied shamanic journeying, practiced it for many years. And this was after many years of practicing Buddhism, and, uh, and it was really interesting by uh, studying with Michael Harner and learning to do shamanic journeying practice. I was able to make so much sense of uh, things in Tibetan Buddhist tradition that had remained puzzling. 
the shamanic journeying is a method of tapping in to essentially the same uh, realm. It's, it's the realm of mystery and power, really, which becomes completely available to you if you spend time practicing jhana in the, in the deep jhanas, fourth jhana. And what I'm talking about here, I'm talking about the deepest jhana. I'm not talking about ultralight, light, or the pollock jhanas or anything like that. I'm talking about the deepest jhanas. That all becomes available to you. And shamanic journeying is just another way of tapping into that, but not of coming into contact with it in the same to the same degree. And it is very easy, as I say, to get caught in some other being's fantasy, and that's no better than being caught in your own. It's like channeling. You know, you're channeling all this, all these wonderful ideas from some other being. But how do you know that being is any smarter, any wiser than you are, right? 